0: Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldecott, and in this program, we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well being. So, if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest today is Tom Engelhart, creator of the TomDispatch.com website, a project of the Nation Institute, a non-profit media centre based in New York, where he is a fellow. He is the author of two collections of his Tom Dispatch columns, one, The United States of Fear and The American Way of War, How Bush's Wars Became Obama's, as well as The End of Victory Culture, a highly praised history of American triumphalism in the Cold War. He's also written a novel called The Last Days of Publishing. Before creating TomDispatch.com, Tom Englehart worked as an editor at Pacific News Service in the early 1970s, and these last four decades as an editor in book publishing. For 15 years he was Senior Editor at Pantheon Books and he is now Consulting Editor at Metropolitan Books as well as the co-founder and co-editor of the American Empire Project of Metropolitan Books where he has published best-selling works by Andrew Bachevich Chomsky and Chalmers Johnson amongst others. His two latest books are The United States of Fear, a collection of pieces from his Tom Dispatch writings, and Terminator Planet, the first history of drone warfare, 2001 to 2050, which he co-authored with Nick Terse. Tom Engelhart, welcome to If You Love This Planet.
1: Glad to
2: be here.
0: Well, I've been reading your articles, and I must say that I agree with every word, but they also invoke a lot of fear in me. Um, which one should we start with? I think let's talk about Terminator Planet and drone warfare. And I just want to preface that by saying when I read about these drones some years ago, the, the commentators and speculators in Washington were thrilled to bits because they said that it's great, America can kill people, win wars without losing any troops at all, and then I wrote about the people who actually worked the drone sitting at consoles in Florida or California or wherever watching from the, um, from the satellites the images on the ground of people going to weddings and, and children and wives and men and stuff and then eventually targeting a so-called suspect. Um, and, and then after it happens, they see the body parts blown everywhere and the blood and the guts and then they have to go and have psychological counseling if you please the whole thing just absolutely sickens me so with that prelude would you would you talk to us please tom engelhardt about your book and 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 virtually what you've written about it
2: yes sure um I think the first thing I would say is that 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 your image of drones, bears almost no uh, relationship to what most Americans know and think about drones. Um, really? You know, the, yes, yes. The drone, he, I mean, there was a recent Pew poll, which was quite interesting, which showed that uh, they, they basically asked people in, in more or less every country on the planet, or many of them in any case, what they thought of drones. And this was the one country where people had a positive view of drones. My and by gosh. the way... That, that's not just Republicans, but Democrats, liberals. Um, you know, but but you have to understand that drones have gotten a fantastic press here. They've been kind of they've been presented as a as a solution to many problems. They pre- presented as I mean they're futuristic. They've been presented as they're they're like they've been presented as like armed iPhones, very sexy, and um, sexy. Um, yes and and they, and they fall into a category which I think is very familiar historically, which is kind of the perfect weapon that's going to solve a whole series of problems and then you can go back to the dreadnought, the tank, the atomic bomb, the electronic battlefield in Vietnam, you know, and each of these things was supposed to solve an ultimate problem and 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 even possibly bring peace to the world and And, and The problem with perfect weapons, I think anyway, is that of course i mean I mean, as with your description. They never deliver, as promised. But by the time they haven't delivered, they've become embedded in mm. our world. Yeah. I mean, the tank hasn't gone away. The atomic bomb hasn't gone away. Yeah. Um, the electronic battlefields only developed, and drones are developing a mile a minute on this planet. I mean, I mean, the U.S. has been in the lead, the Israelis before them, but the U.S. has been and, and remains significantly in the lead on developing drones. But by now, the figures I've seen are maybe 50 or more countries are either developing drones, buying drones, planning to develop them, have them, um, and this includes for the United States places we don't like at all. You know the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, Hezbollah. You know even tried to fly a drone in the 2006 summer war, etc. I, I, and I think the most significant thing about the uh, about drone warfare, because after all, the drone itself. For all its futuristic whatever, it's kind of a, uh, a fancy model airplane being flown by somebody up in, up in the air. It, it, if there are other planes up there, I mean, it's a sitting target. It's just that the U.S. always controls the skies. Um, but but it's it not, in fact, that striking a weapon. But, but what's striking about it is that the U.S. has used it while well, it's had this, this, this predominance. To establish kind of global rules of the road, which are quite frightening, which just say, you know, if you have drones and you're powerful, your sovereignty outweighs anybody else's sovereignty, and you can send your, your, your drones into anybody else's world, um, cross any borders, to kill anybody you consider a bad guy. Now, Americans tend to think of themselves as good and exceptional, and so they don't, they're not as bothered by the idea of that. But, of course, they're going to be mighty bothered when the first Iranian drone crosses uh, some border and kills somebody we don't like, or the Chinese do the same, and so on and so forth. I mean, uh, we've established, we basically, the drone, drones have helped create a kind of a global free-fire zone. Uh, I mean, this is what's been happening in recent years, and 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 other people, other countries are going to join in, and it's a fairly ugly uh, picture when you think it's about it. It's
0: terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I mean, I can imagine myself saying something that maybe the administration didn't like, and I'm in Australia. They could easily send a drone down here and target me. Not now, but you <laughs> don't know in the future. I mean, someday maybe. That's extraordinary.
2: I, I wouldn't wait. I wouldn't wait for that though.
0: Uh, That's extrapolating from what you've said, though. Yeah. Talk about... I mean... Go on. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Talk
2: about Obama
0: sitting in the Oval Office um, working out who to kill with his drones. Talk about
2: that, Tom. Yes. Well, we we know now... um, I mean, thanks in this case to the New York Times. um, We know that the... um, um, I I mean, there are certain other frightening aspects of the drones, and they're not just restricted to the drones, but the drones... Here, in a way, particularly the drones. Most drones that are that are that are there are two two different kinds of drones. There are there are drones flown by the Air Force in, say, Afghanistan, um, maybe over Yemen and some other places. And then the there are drones uh, fighting what would be called we call covert wars, although they're very well known, like in the Pakistani tribal borderlands and uh, in Yemen and Somalia and so on and so forth. Um, and those drones, the CIA drones, are functionally the president's private air force. Really? Um, yes. I mean, and we know now that, that he, we, we, what we know from the New York Times is that, that this president is micromanaging drones are basically weapons of assassination.
1: Yeah, uh, of course uh, they are. That's what they,
2: that, that's what they began as. They've spread from that. Now, now I mean, initially they were, they were sent out to assassinate specific people, now they are sent out to assassinate often kinds of behaviors. That is, Life you see a bunch was. of you see a bunch of young men in an area you think is a, is an area filled with terrorists with weapons. That's a that's a suspicious behavior. You go after them with a the drone. But the pre- we now know that the president has been having meetings about every week. I mean, there are these these are national security. These are meetings with 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 a, with a lot of national security people. That they actually have what's called a kill list. They also call them baseball cards. They're uh, they're baseballs. The American National Support. Um, they're um, uh, profiles of people that they consider bad guys, and the president's actually picking the people the CIA is to kill. Uh, I mean, quite literally, and doing it seemingly, if you believe the Times, more or less weekly. Um, and this would this would be in 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 Pakistan and Yemen, maybe in Somalia, um, and. Um, um, uh, you know, this is. I mean, I mean, this basically makes the president. It's very simple. It's a descriptive rather than a. Uh, it's just a descriptive turn I mean, the the president of the United States, and it really doesn't matter at this case whether it's Obama or uh, Mitt Romney, is functionally now the assassin in chief of the U.S. Now, now, assassination is an old weapon in the world, an old weapon of state, and it's certainly what has been used historically by the United States. I mean. Dwight, you know the, the, the Eisenhower administration went after Lumumba, Macongo, um, mm. uh proxies killed No No Jim Zien, the uh, the uh, the, the the South Vietnamese autocrat uh, during in the Kennedy years. Yeah. Everybody knows that the Kennedy people went after uh, Castro and so on. But always the president tended to have a a kind of a plausible deniability. I mean, it happened at a you know you know the thing that's really new here is first of all that a president is literally micromanaging this not for major figures but for minor figures or people who may not even have names to us. And, and secondly, that these guys in Washington, they're proud of it. And they, they, were, they, were, they were clearly, and it created kind of an uproar here, uh, they were clearly leaking information about this campaign and that, what the president was doing and how they were choosing these things and so on and so forth. They were leaking it here as part of the, uh, basically as part of the, uh, the uh, uh, taking the, the national security high ground in the coming election. So so you have a president who, for the first time, is actually proud. He wouldn't call himself an assassin in chief, of course, but he's proud of this. And and he's proud that everybody should know that they're proud of this.
0: Well, th- there's that. And there's the other thing that um, they'll kill someone suspected of being a terrorist or an insurgent or whatever they want to call these people. And then they watch from the drones to see the funeral of that person and all the young men that go to the funeral are then assumed to be insurgents too, because they're supporting or they're grieving for the dead man who was called an insurgent by Americans. So then they they destroy the men at the funeral.
2: Yes, yes. I mean that they, was they, in the New were, York Times were, too. I
0: mean, how obscene! Were, I mean, there, were, there,
2: there and another version of that, uh, which is evidently reasonably common, at least in the Pakistani borderlands, is. Um, a drone attack on an area, um, on a place somebody's killed, and then rescuers go in, and then there's another attack. Oh, my so,
0: God, they kill the rescuers, yeah. too. That's right.
2: But, but, I mean, part of part of the problem also is, that, I mean, these weapons are clearly more accurate than old-style um, bombs. And we like to talk about their surgical quality and precision and so on and so forth. But the problem is they're only, you know, they're only as accurate as your... Intelligence and America's intelligence on this sort of thing is is seems not to be strong, and we know from 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 um, uh, research by there's a bureau in England that's been research uh, a journalistic bureau that's been researching doing good job work researching this and has come up with, for instance, about uh, accounts of about 175 kids who have died in the the you know kids the teenagers I suppose who have died in the. Uh, in, the, in those tribal, in those Pakistani borderlands, for instance. I mean, we know that there, that there are a lot of... I mean, any time you conduct a war from the air, there's going to be what we like to call collateral damage. It doesn't feel like collateral damage if you're on the ground. And, of course, in this, the drones aren't the worst of things. I mean, Tom Dispatch is one of the few sites, I mean, maybe the only site um, anywhere, I don't know, that, that has tried to count up, for instance, how many wedding parties the U.S. Air Force has taken out oh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan in particular um, in, since um, two thousand and one? The first one. How many? One was, How many? Uh, well, you know, it's it's a little hard to tell, but I counted up to maybe seven. There was another one recently. Now we have to say the the Taliban has taken out weddings too, but but this is but 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 you would think that if the U.S. Air Force had taken out, say, seven or eight wedding parties. I mean, we're talking about significant wedding parties. The first of these uh, in Afghanistan was a village in December 2001. Um, A couple of planes went in, a couple of rounds, and they wiped out all but a couple of of hundred uh, uh, celebrators. Now, I don't think they were, in any of these cases, I don't think they were literally going after weddings. They were just, you know, they were just, they were going after, you know, perhaps crowds. We don't really know. All we know is what happened. One of these was in, Af- uh, in Iraq, on in the desert in Iraq, and, uh, and the others were in Afghanistan. But, I mean, this is the nature. I think we know this. This is the nature of air war. And, of course, the problem with all these so-called solutions to the world's problems when they're so militarized. And the striking thing, I mean, we're just talking about drones and, and maybe air power, but the striking thing is, the striking thing in, 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 in the last decade has been the full-scale militarization of Washington and of the kind of of thinking that goes on in Washington so that everything seems to have a kind of military solution. And the problem with military solutions is, you know, a lot of the time they lead to what, you know, classically we call unexpected consequences, and there have been plenty of them in the world. And what we can see largely is almost to take the drones in almost every case where drones have been loosed, Pakistan. Yemen, Somalia, um, in you know further instability has resulted. People we consider bad guys we've actually taken out. I mean we've done this, but the the overall result in southern Yemen, for instance, we know that the the drones have enraged people in southern Yemen and have sent them into actual support for for this group called Al Qaeda in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. So I, I think on the whole, these these weapons these weapons prove very counterproductive. Um, but, and, and, and most of them the American military solutions, and yet, and yet every military solution that fails, full-scale invasion, whatever it is, all the military solutions of the last years that have failed only lead to a kind of recalibration here in Washington of milit- of other kinds of military solutions and their applications. So we, we've moved now from full-scale invasions on the Eurasian mainland to, uh, a kind of a new, um... A new, you know, thing—a a, a new strategy that involves drones, uh, special operations forces, proxy armies, uh, so on and so forth. Um, which is, uh, you know, this is supposed to be kind of a, a lighter, lighter footprint, cheaper version of American war. That's gonna, that's gonna do, do it better. And, and of course, all of these, these things. I mean, there's no, you know, once upon a time, I mean, the U.S. was a great imperial power, you know, of the post-World War II period, but it had a rather large arsenal of, you can call them weapons, and I don't mean literally weapons, here. it could dig into uh, an arsenal of possible ways to deal with the world, and they weren't all military. Increasingly, as the U.S. becomes, I think, what looks increasingly like a a declining great power, um, it's, it's all its solutions have gone into that single military basket or whatever.
0: I'm interviewing Tom Engelhart, who's the creator of TomDispatch.com website, um, and he's a prolific author and, and publisher. Tom, as you talk, my stomach sort of curdles. <laughs> I'm sorry to do that. Well, no, because I know what you're saying is right. I mean... I find America to be a very, very strange country, particularly since 9-11, where, where Dick Cheney's clinical psychological paranoia overtook really the whole world, where every time you have to get on an aeroplane, now you have to almost undress. And, and uh, you know, the, there's been very little threat of people getting on planes and blowing them up since 9 11 and the like. Um, but it's progressed to Homeland Security and to this weaponization and militarization and and really as a sort of systematic paranoia. Then we go to the horrific situation in America, which even makes my whole blood curdle, where anyone can bloody well buy an assault rifle. And, you know, how many bullets you want. I mean, soon we'll be moving on to tactical nuclear weapons. You know, why not? The NRA will probably support that. So then a young man who's, you know, at a university studying neuroscience, thinks he's going to fail his exam, is clearly schizophrenic. And I can remember in my medical school there was a a lovely boy who became schizophrenic and really behaved in strange and aberrant ways and this guy can go and buy an assault rifle and God knows what else other guns and then go and mow, mow down the whole theatre and no one has the guts, no one has the guts to say these these guns should be banned because they're scared of the National Rifle Association which is, you know paid for most of the people to enter Congress. I'm doing a rave here, but I really feel it so strongly. And so the president and Romney, who's running for president, none of them have the guts to take on the NRA. And if they did, maybe people would rejoice. And if they did, maybe they might lose. But what's more important? And then so people are grieving and praying to God and heavens knows what about the people they've lost and the dead people Terrible, terrible mayhem and grief. Terrible. But there's such a denial about violence and guns. So what you've just been talking about, drones and targeting people and assassinating people, extends from the very homes in America where Nancy Reagan used to go to bed with a little gun under her pillow and it had a mother-of-pearl handle, you know, that sort of thing, on to the whole scenario where russia and america are still threatening to blow up the world with nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert so it goes from little handguns with mother of pearl handles under pillows to the whole thing of nuclear war and there's sort of a a psychic numbing or blunting of the affect and the emotions about grief and then they're playing these god-awful violent films the whole time and that Batman film apparently is as violent as hell. And so the kids watch it they're brought up on it, you know and they have these video games and but no one really sees the blood the guts and the grief that we see in the emergency rooms when patients are brought in and the extraordinary grief of the families who lose lose their relatives and the like. It is. It is really a whole schizophrenic nation where there's a split betr- between reality and perception of reality. Would you like to comment
2: on that, Tom? Well, <laughs> I think you've commented well enough. I, I, you know, here's here's what I let, let me let me take this in a slightly different direction because because um, uh, you know. Uh, I mean, you, you brought up the word paranoia, and in, in, in the title of my book, The United States of Fear, I use fear, because I think one of the things that happened since, what, one of the things that, 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 that 9-11 allowed was for um, a, a kind of a, a fear to be pumped like a drug into the American bloodstream, and that in turn has allowed all sorts of things, and one of the strange things that it's allowed, and it goes with this, it, it's not guns in the home, but it's but it's but it's the national security state. It's allowed for a very strange phenomenon, which is if if you step back for a minute, you know, the U.S. in the Cold War years when it was facing the Soviet Union, and there really was, there was another empire out there. It was large. It was, As you well know from your history, it was armed with nuclear weapons. But it
0: still um, is. That's what people don't know. And, and of course it still is. You're, and, you're and quite and still right. tar- There and, are 40 and it, H-bombs targeted on New York right now, and yeah, 60 yeah. And, on and and, and as
2: we are, we're, we're, we're armed the same way. We only, yeah. you know, I, I've been struck, and this is a, I want to return to my point, but I just to say as a complete sideline, because nuclear weapons, interestingly enough, are constantly in the news here. But the but only one nuclear weapon and it's a nuclear and it's the Iranian bomb which oh, doesn't exist
1: pathetic.
2: you know and it, one of the strange phenomenon of our American world right now is that people are riveted by a nuclear weapon that doesn't exist. Yeah. and nobody discusses the weapons that do exist. Exactly. but let me return for, I
0: totally me, agree with that yeah
2: yeah but let me return for a minute to the, the during the Cold War, we had a rather large national security. Bureaucracy, intelligence bureaucracy, military, and so on and so forth. But here's the strange thing: the Soviet Union collapsed in what 1990, um, and and there was a kind of a, a stunned pause for a little while. People talked about a uh, peace dividend here, which never happened, and so on and so forth. And then we, the U.S., basically took the Soviet route, what I would call the Soviet route. That is, that we we you know the Soviet Union had poured it was the less less wealthy of the two superpowers. It poured its money into its military. It let its infrastructure rot. It became sclerotic. And finally, it got in, it, it. found itself involved in what its leader, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, ended up calling the bleeding wound, which was Afghanistan. Now, we ended up yeah. it, 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 with no enemy in the world we ended up going in the same direction yeah. and we and of course we now end up in Afghanistan too with a with a with a with a, with a, with a, a rotting infrastructure uh, our money poured into the military but here's the curious thing if you look at that huge national security structure of the cold war period and then you look at this period there are very few real enemies in the world. I mean, I mean, there you're talking aren't about any,
0: a, let's be frank. No, you're, well, there you're aren't talking any. about a, you're, this is
2: Rube you're talking up. about a, well, to my mind, you're talking about a few thousand jihadis. You're talking about because we because of what we've done a, a couple of minority insurgencies. You're talking about a couple of rickety regional powers, uh, Iran and North Korea, and so on and so forth. Really, it's you know, even if you consider all of these to be enemies, this is a very puny thing, and yet the great, the fascinating phenomenon of this moment, and, and of the last 12 years, is that the American national security structure is vastly larger. Mm. You know, it has more money in it, there are more intelligence outfits, there are more, I mean, everything has grown functionally without an enemy. Yeah. And and that, I think, underpins much else, and it is fascinating. And, and we, I mean, we even have a second defense department because the Pentagon, which is kind of the offense department, is now seconded by a thing called the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. Homeland itself, before nine eleven, would have been an un-American word. You talked about country, nation, but not homeland. Homeland was something that Russians or Germans said. So we now have this this second very large um um uh, 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 defense department set up you know, by I mean, Dick
0: Cheney and right. Rumsfeld.
2: Yes, yes that's right. clinically well, by, paranoid yes, yeah, yeah, it was. It's a very so so. It is a very. I mean, I hesitate because, unlike you, I'm not a doctor. I hesitate to use psychological uh, terms, but but you know, but certainly fear has allowed much to happen, and it's also made the society a much more closed society, a much tighter society. We've lost many um, um, uh, many um, uh, what would have been considered American liberties. Surveillance is staggering in this country now. I mean, it's really startling. Um, I I, I came across figures the other day. There was a government report on the classification of documents. Now, back in 1996, there were were stunning numbers of documents classified back in 1996. I think it was the number. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was about 5 million documents classified by the U.S. government in the year 1996. In the year 2011, 92 million documents classified. Let's I mean, this tells again. you something. This tells you something staggering about the growth of secrecy, et cetera, et cetera. And and, and with this, the, the that what I call the national security complex is um, it has kind of almost lifted off the American planet, and it is now responsible to no one. I mean, you can say this. I I I the way I, I you know I've argued this in the United States of Fear that we're really in a po- what I call a post-legal society. In this sense, I mean, if I break into somebody's house I'm gonna, and, and somebody catches me, I'm going to end up in, um, uh, in court. Yeah. But if we break into somebody's house, nothing will happen. If we torture, if we kidnap people off the streets of the world, none of these things, the only thing that can be done in the national security state that can bring you into court in these recent years is, um, if you, if you, is, 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 is to leak information. Whistleblowers have been brought to court fiercely. In a way that we've never seen before. Other than that, no official of the U.S. government in any of the potentially illegal acts that have gone on in these years has been brought to court, which means that the legal system, in essence, no longer applies to the national security complex. Tom, and that's a great change. Tom, what,
0: what is the definition of the national security state? Which I think was, who was the first person that coined that phrase?
2: I actually don't know. Was
0: it Truman or someone way back? But what 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 does it mean, national security state?
2: Well, I just think I mean it, for me it would include uh, at this point it would include the um, the Pentagon obviously, which is enormous. With I mean, which has had money pumped into it at ever increasing levels now for twelve years. I mean, staggering but amount of money. What does it mean it was- to
0: the country as a whole and to the people in the country? The national security state. I don't know. Mean? You know,
2: I I can't answer that. I don't. No. I honestly don't know. No. I I the only thing I would say is that 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 you know, the one thing that Americans seem to have somehow accepted is that that the the, the guarantee of the national security complex is that Americans will be safe, one hundred percent safe from terrorism.
0: Yeah, moaned, I mean, uh, moaned down by each other in.
2: Yes, yes, theaters. yes. No, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i simply saying this is kind of the premise that's been made. You know, some guy gets on a plane with a bomb in his underwear, we're going to get him. And, and we'll do it. We'll focus. Now, no, you know, it's a very weird premise because many things, I mean, I mean, I mean, if you put it in perspective, first of all, 9-11 aside, terrorism has, terrorism as, I mean, if you don't define it as the Aurora event or Columbine or something, terrorism has killed more people than sharks in this country, but less than almost anything else that you could imagine. I mean, I mean, avalanches, dust devils, smoking, car crashes. I mean, there's no comparison on any of these things. Um, and um, um, so, so, but what Americans have been offered is, is you know, theoretically 100% safety or close to it, or an attempt to create that on something that largely doesn't endanger yeah. them. And and of course, no one is offered. Anything like not even fifty percent safety on, on most of the things that really matter. Your foreclosed home, you know, foodborne illnesses, whatever Medical it might care. be. Huh. Yeah.
0: Tom, let's move on to Afghanistan because you wrote a, sure. a very interesting piece about the fact that America is spending what fifty billion a year now in Afghanistan, training Afghans to uh, kill. Insurgents, I suppose, or whoever—I don't know what it means—and uh, and remembering that Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in the world, and yeah. that they have suffered wars for the last three or four decades, you know, being the fighting place between America and, and Russia and the Soviet Union, and now it's America and the like. But but you write about the fact that the soldiers and police who are being trained and armed by America, wearing wearing uniforms made by American companies or maybe Chinese companies and carrying American-made guns and the like are turning upon their trainers who are the Americans and killing them and that the attacks that they, the the Americans, have experienced in the last year have been increasing year by year uh, by these people. Would you like to just extrapolate a little on that situation, Tom Englehart?
2: sure sure. Let, let me just back up on one thing which is we 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 haven't actually we're not spending 50 billion a year on the security for the Afghan security forces we're spending right now about 11 or 12 billion a year oh, okay. it's, it's it's 50 all told i mean we oh, spent 50 all more. told well what yeah, else
0: but, are you spending it on then like
2: that, just under 50 billion all told this is just on training you know uh, i mean on on uh, money going into beefing up this the the, the the Afghan security forces to a force of 300odd thousand this is of course in a completely impoverished country that could not I mean one thing that this guarantees which is that the Afghanistan no Afghanistan could own a force like this because Afghanistan has no money for a force like this so this means that this is really our force this is this of this, this, it is. this has to remain a proxy force. Forever, because we, I mean, as long as we're willing to pay for it, the, the U.S. and. But Maine.
0: why is America doing That's what I'm interested in. I know there's a, a, a hell of a lot of rare minerals in uh, Afghanistan and oil. Do you reckon that that's the, the main or primary reason?
2: I No, because no. I think, I mean, I think, I, I personally, I think, you know, I mean, I mean, the Bush administration, to go way back, You know, certainly it was an energy administration. They had come out of energy, you know, a number of them had come out of energy companies, including the president and vice president at various points. Um, and they certainly were thinking about oil, or as they used to call it, for Iraq, but they were thinking about Iraqi oil, they were thinking about Middle Eastern oil. I, I think I think actually the, the the discoveries on Afghanistan of mineral wealth have been relatively recent and and they may play some modest role now. Well, but why,
0: I don't well I don't then understand why the hell they want to arm and train three hundred thousand Afghanis against what and for whom? I don't understand what it's about,
2: Tom. Well, you see, uh, <laughs> you're asking me to explain. Yeah. So, I, mean, I mean, I mean, my problem is that, that I thought from the first moment. I mean, I, I, here, here's the thing. We, we, we have to back up and say, if you look at the Bush administration, I mean, 9-11 happened, um, and they, you know, the Bush administration, you have to say, the first thing you have to say about the Bush administration, and in this way they were quite different than the Obama administration, they were military romantics most of them hadn't been in the military some of them had but most of them hadn't avoided um it. but but they were it was like you know it was like um they were like the kind of the peter pans of war or something were the draft and they the <laughs> and they and they had a belief that um um that uh, uh that the they they were totally dazzled by the us military and uh, this was and this was well before 2000 uh, uh, this world before 9/11, mm-hmm. and 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 they 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 mis, they made a mis, they made they misread the world in a very basic way. They believed that U.S. military in, in a world where there were no enemies, there was nothing on the horizon. They believed that U.S. military power would be the trump card on the first in the greater Middle East and then on the planet. You know, and if the, if it could just be loosed. You would actually create. I mean, I mean, neocons here and pundits were literally talking about, you know, how we would be the, the Roman and, and 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 British empires rolled into one, greater than anything you had ever seen before, et cetera, et cetera. There was a brief moment of utter triumphalism, and they mistook military power for power. Now, I mean, I mean, the U.S. military is a very, a uh, very big, technologically advanced and destructive thing, um, but it turned out as we now know that, that, that it while well, it was very dangerous as a threat when you actually loosed it, you know, even against rather ragtag minority insurgencies, it it it, it, it did relatively it just couldn't do much. It couldn't it it, 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 it but, but but they decided this was their this was their ticket to creating a a both two things. A global Pax Americana, or at least a Pax Americana in the Greater Middle East. You know, there was a, a neocon quip back in two thousand three, at the time of the uh, that when they were heading for the invasion of Iraq. The 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 the, 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 the neocon joke was, um, everybody wants to go to Baghdad. Real men want to go to Tehran, i.e. i.e. Iraq wasn't the end of it. So the first invasion, of course, because of Osama bin Laden was there, was Afghanistan. But it was a kind of an afterthought. They, I mean, Afghanistan was one, you know, it, I, I think they just thought geo-geo strategically. They were going to take Afghanistan. I mean, they could have, they could have gone after Osama bin Laden with, 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 with military troops and everything else, and then left. But they, they were going to occupy it. It was it was on one side of Iran. It was uh, a it, it, it was it was to nail something down. Then they were going to go into Iraq, and and all of this was going to nail down the Greater Middle East for them. And this is and of course the Greater Middle East did mean the oil heartlands of the planet. So it all worked at that level. None of it worked out, of course. It was this was they were visionaries, and they were just mad visionaries. Um, and they established the world we're in. So when you ask why are we doing this in Afghanistan, we're kind of, you know, it's like it's like um, um, it's like uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, it's kind of like Mount Everest. It's because it's there. We were there, and and because we were staying, we had to create a force that would be a proxy force for us, and so on and so forth. I mean, there was a kind so of a madness it to it. It
0: makes me think that Obama's not nearly the wise and intelligent man that we all thought he was,
2: huh? No, no. I mean, I mean, what I would say about the Obama people is... Why is he they... following in
0: the footsteps of Bush?
2: Well, I would say, first of all, there were two Bushes. The, there was a visionary Bush of the first term plus a year or two, which led to utter disaster. And then there was the, 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 the kind of the management version of Bush—it wasn't Bush himself—but he brought in Robert Gates as Defense Secretary, and they began managing this disaster. And 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 if you remember when Obama came in, he continued. He kept Gates as his Secretary of mm, Defense. Yeah. Um, he he as his National Security Advisor, he took a, a a former Marine general who actually was had been a friend of. John McCain, and as his Secretary of State, he took somebody actually who was a, a senatorial friend of John McCain, uh, Hillary Clinton. So you, you, would, you would guaranteed a kind of continuation. I mean, I knew this. I, I, as soon as I saw these appointments, I, I, I'm proud to say that, that, that I wrote about two or three weeks after his election. I wrote a... a uh, a column, which which I still remember was headlined, Don't Let Barack Obama Break Your Heart. I mean, it was obviously directed to people like myself here. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the answer is these we don't have a group of, uh, and we didn't at the end of the Bush administration either, we don't have a group of visionaries in power, mad or otherwise. We have a group of managers in power, and they're managing the thing they got, and they're managing it in very much the manner that they got it. But, so, but with no
0: with no thinking or analysis no, or understanding, no. it's moral depravity. That's what I would say, moral depravity.
2: Well, there's no, and there, as I say, one thing is that Washington thinking has narrowed to a kind of militarized thinking about the killing. world. And, it's
0: about killing.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's,
0: that's what gets me, Tom, and I. I just have to say this as a physician. You know, having taken the Hippocratic Oath and spent my life, life trying to save lives, and I, I just, I can't get beyond the the, the moral depravity of, of of killing and the whole American ethos. Now and then, then we go into Africom and how America's militarily colonized and is colonizing. The whole world with its military programs and bases and the like. I mean, my feeling is, how dare they? I mean, who does America
2: think it is? I feel the same way. I feel the same way, and I'm here. <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, I, I, what I,
0: extraordinary! Um, what I can't think of a word to describe it. Arrogance and and uh, egocentricity and. You know, when, I, when I, I, I address many American audiences and I say, you're not the greatest country on earth, you know, what about Australia? We've got kangaroos and that makes everyone laugh, of course. In fact, I got up this morning, there was a kangaroo in my back garden. But um, it's, it's the most extraordinary sort of thinking, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, but it's so dangerous. Also, I mean if, you're, if you're here, we've also lived through, I mean, a, the version of the greatest country on earth now. And by the way, let me say that 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 although there's now much talk about, I mean, you can't be a presidential candidate not, not talk endlessly about American exceptionalism. One of the striking things. What is, is I mean, American was,
0: exceptionalism? Let's well, be frank. I mean, <laughs> what is it? Yes.
2: Yes. I mean, The Chinese I
0: I say have... we're not exceptional. They say their you know, but, culture is ancient, ancient, ancient culture compared to ours. Yeah. We've got long noses and we smell funny. And they're very, very cultured. I mean, I can see from their perspective how they look down upon us as sort of neophytes in the culture area.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just, you know, but, but the thing that strikes me is, I mean, I'm, 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 68 years old, so I grew up in the 1950s, and if you go back to that period, when the U.S. really was the single globally dominant power on the planet.
1: Militarily. And, and that
2: means that means not militarily, although it was true militarily, but economically. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody taught... I mean, it was assumed, I suppose, that we were exceptional, but it wasn't a phrase that was used. You didn't find presidents saying this at all. I think, I think part of what you're hearing in all this, because, you know... Um, uh, let, me, let me give you an analogy. Um, I was always struck by, I don't know if you remember the post-Vietnam Rambo movies, but, uh, but, but, but in the movies, the U.S. replayed the Vietnam War in ways that kind of would make it work out better. Oh. And, and, and they gave, in that period, they gave their characters, and particularly Rambo, giant muscles. And, you know, when you look at it, I mean, the great, the, the, the screen heroes of, again, of my childhood, the cowboys and so on and so forth, like, when you look at them now, they weren't that extraordinary looking. They looked like human beings. I mean, whatever you thought of them, you know, even John Wayne or whoever, you know, he didn't have big muscles or anything like that. He wasn't really overarmed. I mean, there's something, when, you, when there's too much of anything... You can hear that underneath it, there's actually vulnerability. Yeah. And I think right now, the the endless talk about exceptionalism here, and and particularly, by the way, there's a military version of this, which is our presidents now say regularly the U.S. military is the finest force in the finest fighting force in history, the greatest fighting force in Killing. history. I think George mm-hmm. Bush, George Bush said specifically it was the greatest liberatory force in history. This sort of the constant repetition of this stuff I think reflects reflects a kind of a feeling of yeah. I think I think when you have to say something too much
1: yeah.
2: you you the, there is a reflection of weakness in it I mean a, a, a feeling of something not going right Tom, and I think un-
0: but Tom yeah. what what is exceptionalism It's exceptional in what area or areas would
2: people well I mean say? I, I don't what, want what, to have to argue it? for I mean I, I'm, I'm living in a world where this is a constant, this is the language of the world I live in. Do I, know, I think that, But what, but do what does I think it mean? In, yeah, well I mean I think I think it means, you know, we're good and you're not.
1: Oh, more is or that less. Enough?
2: You know, <laughs> it mean, it means it means what we do, you know, if you go back to the drones, what we do is okay because we're essentially good. We're gonna make our decisions in the spirit of the world and so on and so forth. And if you do exactly the same thing, you know you're 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 not good, you're not exceptional, you're not innocent, you're not whatever. It sounds and, like and little
0: three- or four-year-old boys in a sandbox. Mine's oh, bigger than lot. yours, I, I, I'm better than you, that sort of very juvenile, really
2: pathetic I, I felt, stuff. I felt as though I've been watching kids in a sandbox here for years, mm. so I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember I once went to see Senator Pell, um... That's before he died, and we were talking about the Cold War. It was during the eighties uh, between Russia and America, and I said they were they they those two superpowers remind me of little boys in a sandbox. And the doctor who was with me got quite offended that I should say such a thing to Pell, but it was true, <laughs> and yeah. and you Pell know, laughed.
2: You know, you know, there was a time when American senators. I mean, you know, I mean, for instance, to give you an example, Senator Fulbright. Might have said such a thing. Yes. I mean, I mean, if you go back to the sixties, you know, yeah. he, you know, he didn't write about the exceptionalism of American no. power. He wrote about the he wrote about his phrase was the arrogance of American power. You know, I mean, it's this very important,
0: oh, I think, for for nations to have a degree of humility too, particularly when they are so militarily powerful, because humility leads to wisdom and sagacity. Uh, and you know, a lot of Americans call themselves Christians. But if you look at what that man Jesus preached, I mean, he was the ultimate preacher in humility. Leave your possessions and follow me, you know, and it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. If those people really followed what he taught and preached, then there would be a degree of humility abroad and it it would then start to make America... A somewhat of a great nation, if it really followed those edicts.
2: This will not happen. <laughs> let me just let me just say that we are we are we are we our our leaders are in this sense they they can't and in fact. You cannot afford any more, I mean, at least this is what, this is the, the common wisdom. Who knows what the reality is? You you cannot afford to, you know, the common wisdom is you can't afford to say that that anything but this is the greatest well, nation. Well, you know, earned.
0: yeah, but do you know what, Tom? I, I lecture to, I've lectured to millions of Americans, and, you know, there may be a group of 20 or 2,000 in a lecture theater, And I talk like this to them. And do you know what they end up doing? They end up weeping. And I'll tell you why. Because they really know what the truth is inside their hearts and souls. And when they hear it, they resonate with that. And I always think, you know, if I was president or whoever, and you didn't care whether or not you're going to be elected for the next term of office, and you had the bully pulpit, and you were the commander-in-chief... You could lead and inspire people. You could teach them and stimulate them and, and, and you know, get to their better do, senses. I mean, and and I tell you, Americans are very decent, caring people. They desperately want to do the right thing, but they don't know what the right thing is. And so they say, you know, they listen to Mitt Romney and they think, oh, maybe that's the right thing. And then they listen to someone else and they say, Maybe that's the right thing, but in their hearts and souls, they really know what the right thing is. They just need someone to take them by the hand and say, come on, children, this is the way we go to become really fine, loving, caring people.
2: Well, here's the other thing, which I think as well, and and I was kind of getting at this before, I think underneath the bravado, this language of bravado and so on and so forth, um, there is a, an ever-deepening feeling here of vulnerability, of things going wrong. I mean, you look at the polls where people are sat down, and some people sit down in some room and they're asked what they think. And I mean, the, the percentage of Americans who think that this country is in decline, the yeah. percentage of Americans who think it's on the wrong track, these are the questions that are asked, the percentage of Americans who think... Something is wrong. Mm. I mean, they're just—it's—it's it, astronomical oh, they now. Oh Yeah. Oh yes. They people, know. people know, and and but as I say, I, I think increasingly the national security state is is above and divorced from and without accountability.
0: It is, but, but then if there was a decent leader like a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King or a Nelson Mandela or even a Gorbachev who would rise up above this and had the bully pulpit and had the guts, let's face it, the guts to really inspire and stimulate the people there could be a massive massive change in thinking and a totally new direction despite the national security state which would then become secondary and someone could take control of it and, and virtually decimate it because it's unnecessary but of course
2: but of course realistically there's no there's no such person, person i mean on the on the there's i mean when you look i mean in fact i would say what's stunning about the present political moment in this country is, you know, that, that, I mean, the Republicans who ran, I mean, if you just take the Republican Party, the inability of the Republican Party to find a single, I mean, at a moment, when you have a president who is unbelievably economically vulnerable, who should, who could be beaten by, theoretically, almost any anybody, to, to, to come up with a candidate so vulnerable, so weak, so poor as Mitt Romney, and he was the best of the group out there and mm. then you look on the Democratic side and you see one of the striking things that I don't remember this in my lifetime is a a a a a, a weak sitting president a weakened sitting president who looked vulnerable and there was not not no democratic there wasn't even a symbolic Democratic challenge there wasn't even a minor Eugene McCarthy of uh, 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 68 or anything like that there was, there was nothing not not even for one second was there a challenge? I mean, nothing. I mean, both parties, I mean, it looks like a leadership that is devoid of, it's you true. know. It's true. Yeah, it's true. There very, are no moral principles
0: striking. being enunciated yeah. at all, none. And, you know, I, I just have to again say from my experience, which is pretty vast in the United States, people are hungry for moral principles. They're hungry for leadership, for guidance. Tell us what to do, they say. Tell us what to do. Um, and, and there's just such a moral vacuum out there that could be filled by someone who has the light in their eye and, and the light in their brain and their hearts, you know. <laughs>
2: you, you, could, you could feel this a bit um, last year when the Occupy movement yes. swept briefly yes. across the country. And it yes. was quite striking. And mm-hmm. I was out there looking and involved and i would say you yeah. know you could really feel particularly with young people but it wasn't could. just young people yes. you know you you could feel that that people were ready mm. for i mean that, that, that there was a, a kind of an upwelling of a desire for something something else you know i i, I and, and it was striking and i hadn't seen it in many many years and
0: no I, and i got i got a lot of courage and optimistic yeah. feeling from that but unfortunately yeah. Yeah. i think that the homeland security apparatus has sort of banged it on the head and made it go away in a way.
2: Well, you know, it was very striking. I mean, because I've I had two, I've had two kind of mobilized moments in my life, and the first was Vietnam, and I was out in the
1: streets in Vietnam. I yeah. mean, I
2: was demonstrating and so on. And when you go out to demonstrate today in the United States, it's a, such a strikingly different experience. You step out into a demonstration anywhere, and you are in jail. And I don't mean literally that they're arresting you. I mean... I mean, the streets are simply no longer yours. There's this huge... Police militarized.
1: Process, this ...staggering,
2: yes. and, and, and the police have these moving kind of gates that they put around you as you march, so that you're literally enclosed as you march. I mean, it's a very um, striking... Well, image. and I
0: read an article, Tom, Tom Englehart, I read an article the other day saying that it was Reagan who brought in the notion that the police force in America should virtually become militarised. And there was a lot of opposition to this by the police departments themselves. Yeah. But eventually they conceded. And now, under Homeland Security, the police are armed, actually, and equipped by the Pentagon who give them all these ghastly weapons to control, yeah. quotes, unquotes. The American crowds who are trying to gather in peaceful assembly I, to I do mean, whatever to they have to example. do, and that's very scary. Yeah.
2: yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, I'm scared because you know I have been out there, and I I mean, the police are literally up armored, and and of course, in it's it's post nine it's post nine eleven. So they're looking on the demonstrators, I mean, in a way, as if the demonstrators were a massive terrorist. I mean, this is the way you feel. It's very claustrophobic feeling. The helicopters are overhead. Police forces in, in, in relatively small places are starting, just beginning, to buy drones, for instance.
1: Mm-hmm. They are
2: having access to drones. Please, there are police departments in the United States, including Tampa Bay, where the Republican convention is going to be, that have tank-like um yeah, they're being sale. equipped by
0: the Pentagon. In fact, Gore Vidal, no, the, Gore Vidal the, who just died, he wrote yeah. an except it was he who I just read wrote an exceptional piece about this and about the national yes. security state. Um yes. Yes.
2: Uh, he he was he was very early on the national security yeah. state, American Empire, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, yeah, there,
0: so. Yeah, what a what a wonderful man. I once was in a television studio with Gore Vidal. Um I think it was when we had the nineteen eighty-two huge million-person march in Central Park against I was there. nuclear weapons. Wasn't that profound that day, Tom? It
2: was, it was extraordinary, yes. It was truly extraordinary.
0: Biggest yes. demonstration, I think, in the history of America. Yeah. And yeah, then and, and so we were winning against the military-industrial complex and then Reagan did an end, or, or Teller actually, did an end run around us and started talking about Weapons in space and missile defense, and sure. um, so they just moved on.
2: They did indeed.
0: America's now weaponizing space, um, and and to quote, affect very many kills down on Earth from space. In fact, yeah. I co-wrote a book about that called "War in Heaven." So it's much, much bigger now than missile defense and a big shield, a big yellow plastic shield over America that Amer- that Reagan used to contemplate. Where. Russian missiles came and sort of went boink, 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 bounced off the yellow plastic shield. It's much, much worse now. And the whole of the world wants to bring into the United Nations um, a law banning weapons in space, and the countries opposing that are the European Union, um, the United States, and I think Australia, I'm not sure... Because oh, <laughs> well, we're becoming Australia. I
2: can't imagine. I mean, that is remarkable. We're becoming
0: yeah. the fifty first state of the United States at the uh, moment. Yeah, I mean,
2: yeah. well, I you know I feel that in a positive way because Tom Dispatch, my website, um, has has a nice little contingent of Australian readers. And I, I, I wake great. up in the morning and, and, and emails are, are are arrive from them. It's always it's always wonderful. I'm a, I always get a kick out of it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe I was wrong about it, Australia voting with the EU and, and America on that. Maybe it was the UK. Anyway, look, Tom, I think we've run out of time now with this really fascinating discussion. We could go on, I'm sure, for hours. For
1: um, hours, um, yes, of course. Yes,
0: there's yeah. so much to talk about and so important now. Um, but I really thank you for your insights, your intelligence, your depth of knowledge and and the writings that you do, which I I encourage everyone to read and everyone to go to TomDispatch.com because I think um, Tom Englehart's writings are really brilliant and cutting edge.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Tom, very much. My guest on If You Love This Planet Today was Tom Englehart, author and creator of the TomDispatch.com website, a project of the Nation Institute, which is a non-profit media centre based in New York, where he is a fellow. I, I do encourage you to listen every week. I mean, I think we're talking about the most important issues facing the planet at the moment, which is why it's called If You Love This Planet. I do encourage you to support us too. We, we really need uh, to pay our producers, um, and money's a little low at the moment. You can go to our website, ifyoulovethisplanet.org. And, and press the donate now button you need to know too that the new press is producing a book called loving this planet which is coming out in September uh, which is uh, a compilation of 26 of some of the best interviews in the first th- two years that we've been doing this program uh, I think you'll like that anyway thanks for listening now we'll be back with you again next week bye for now
1: You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet, .org.